Hey everyone, I'm Andrea Ferretti, and this is episode 208 of Yoga Land. Today, we are going to go back to an old-fashioned format and answer some listener questions. Hi, Jason. Hi. How are you? Good. I'm excited that um, that people have helped us by asking us a bunch of questions. Yes, yes. We were going to first start with... Um, just acknowledging some, I mean, quite frankly, sad news in our community, especially specifically, we know that this is happening all around, but in San Francisco, uh, one of the biggest chain of yoga studios announced that they were closing this week. Yeah. And you know, when we say chain of yoga studios, it can sound kind of impersonal, but um, one, they continue to employ a lot of people. And they have a ton of good teachers and they have a big community. Um, and two, Yoga Tree really was a staple in the San Francisco Bay Area, but especially the San Francisco community for a long time. I mean, I remember when they opened, I think they opened in around 2000, 2001. Mm-hmm. And it is, God, it's just one of those things that reminds you that everything is alive and everything goes through cycles Mm -hmm. because that studio was the epicenter of yoga in this city for a really long time. So uh, not to dwell on it, but yeah, to take a moment and acknowledge, um, I think all that they did through the years, they had a couple of different ownerships, but um, all the studios or excuse me, all the teachers that are there um, and all the students. Yeah. 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 For me, it was that, yeah, they, I think they did open around 2000, um, maybe 2001. I, t- my very first class I ever took there was with Rusty Wells. Mm-hmm. Um, and then of course, I mean, yeah, anybody who taught in San Francisco and did it for any length of time taught at yoga tree for some point. And there was just several different locations and they each had a different feel. You taught there, you know, up until, shelter in place. Yeah. I mean, I never, I never thought about myself as being one of the hallmark teachers there. I really didn't because I didn't really teach for them in their absolute heyday. You know, I started working with them actually not that long ago, Mm -hmm. maybe 10 years ago, eight years ago, which to some might seem long, but to me that I don't think it is. It's like when I think of them, I still think about kind of that mid 2000s, Janet Stone, Stephanie Snyder, Rusty Wells—like that. Those yeah. those were really the three hallmark teachers at that studio, and and I was at kind of more Iyengari technically kind of places. Uh, so I was around during that same period of time, but but that wasn't my uh, that wasn't exactly my community. But um, yeah, they I was were, just, yeah, yeah. What I was going to say is just that um, it feels it just really feels like the end of an era. Um, and as you said, you just realized that impermanence is a part totally. of life. And um, it, it just reminds me, it's hard. Like it reminds me yeah. of old San Francisco. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. We, you and I've been here a long time now. Yeah. So we've seen a lot of changes yeah. and, uh, and, you know, just along with part of the reason I wanted to bring it up was just to acknowledge all the people in our community and just that we're thinking about you and um, yeah, just our hearts go out to you. It's a hard time. But also just we know that around the world that it's hard for yoga studios and yoga teachers right now. And I don't know. I just, yeah, like you said, not to dwell on it, but just to acknowledge that um, it's hard. 
It is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I've said it. I've been saying it since the beginning of COVID, but I've never been more thankful that I have a digital presence, you know, and that I've been teaching online for a long time because that has stayed steady. Um, and, you know, I, I think everyone's going to be, I don't, I, I don't, I don't, I don't know, blanket statements. Everyone's going to be fine. Everyone's going to be fine. Um, but yeah, to acknowledge that. And that being said, we had a smaller thing, but not necessarily a smaller thing to you. Um, you finally launched this content course of yours. I did, yes. That yes. has been kicking around inside your existence for <laughs> well year. over a year. Yeah, well over a year. Yes. Uh, no, it felt great to get it off the ground. And similar to, I tell the story of when I launched my podcast, I basically just picked a date so that I would do it. I picked Earth Day. I, I mean, I, within reason, I, I had a plan, but I picked a date and I just moved forward from that date. And I did the same thing with this. I mean, I could have sat on it for like another month, six weeks, you know, just refining it, refining, refining. But I knew that you were going to start teaching more workshops again this fall because yeah. you're keeping yeah. all of your commitments to yeah. your the studios that you were teaching for. And I knew that Sophia was going back to school and I knew all these things. So at a certain point, I was like, all right, next week, September 1st, it's going to be September 1st. And uh, it's been it's been great. It's been a lot of fun. And it's a nice feeling for me to be able to um, just help people in this way after working in content for so long, I feel comfortable and uh, helping people in this way. So it feels good. There's such a, there's something so deeply satisfying about finishing a project, <laughs> Yeah, you know? Um, I mean, I used to get that by pretty much every Sunday, I'd finish the project of having taught a weekend workshop or training at a studio. And then, you know, it just feels good to, to kind of, I don't mean it badly, but to like tick things off a list, sure. you know, to like, create something, execute something, conclude something, move on. Um, and it's been so nice to see how happy you've been <laughs> this week. I mean, you've just been so, so enamored with life. <laughs> there were many, many late nights. There I know. were many over the course of more than a year, you know, and there were many times of having to like put it down and let it go because you were teaching a two-week module or because Sophia was having a meltdown or whatever it was. You know, there were just many times of feeling like, oh my gosh, how am I going to get over this insurmountable mountain? And uh, so, yes, I I have had, I'm glad that you can tell that I feel happy. Oh, big time, big time, <laughs> big time, big time. Let's get to the questions. So we're going to start with a short and sweet question from Pilar. And the question is, Internal or external hip rotation in forward folds? Okay. So people will say this all the time. Shorts, I got a really simple question for you. The trouble is I never have an easy answer. Mm -hmm. It can be a short question, but I have a long answer. Mm -hmm. The reason I always have a long answer is because context and backstory is so important with almost everything. So, Okay. So when we think about internal rotation versus external rotation in a forward bend, the first thing that we want to acknowledge, I think there's two, two things to acknowledge. Number one, actually describing and then understanding rotation is difficult, right? It's one of the things I think that, that many teachers struggle with is to accurately 
describe rotation. And then number two, I think even more difficult is for students to actually understand understands how to rotate this way or that way. Um, now, it's really important because the body doesn't move in simple linear planes. We're always moving through a certain amount of rotations, and it's important to address. The second thing is we have to understand the difference between, and we've talked about this in other podcasts, right? But the difference between an action and a motion, right? So not all actions produce emotion. So I can push on the floor as hard as I can. The floor is not going to go anywhere, but I am producing action. I'm engaging muscles to press on a thing, even if nothing is actually moving in the floor or within my body. Okay. And so when we talk about internal rotation and external rotation, we're usually talking about it as it relates to hips and or upper arm bones. So femur inside the hip joint or humerus inside the scapular joint. When we talk about that, we want to take a point to, to figure out whether or not we are engaging the muscles that rotate or whether or not we're engaging the muscles that rotate and something is actually moving as a result. Have I gone way too into the weeds on this? Are you sure? Yeah, I think so. I mean, you just got to start coming back. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Come back to the runway. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, this would be this would be a situation where if I was writing this, yes. I would hold down the delete button for a long period of time. <laughs> or I would probably invert the order of things that you're... But anyway, go ahead. Okay, so when you do a forward bend, typically you, you are going to internally rotate your femurs. Now, that doesn't mean they're always actually going to move. They might stay neutral. That's why the backstory is important. But when you engage your internal rotators, you facilitate anterior tilt to the pelvis. And in all forward bends, you are anteriorly tilting the pelvis. You're rotating the pelvic rim forward towards the front of the thighs, okay? So when you engage your internal rotators, you help facilitate that anterior tilt to the pelvis, right? So that's typically why something in like standing forward bend or seated forward bend or even a wide-legged forward bend, you engage the internal rotators because that helps the pelvic rim rotate forward over the thighs. Nice and simple. But many that where this gets more confusing, but I'm going to stay on the runway, where this gets more confusing is... That doesn't mean, A, that you want your femur significantly internally rotated. Like, I don't want my heels super wide and my toes towards each other. You know what I mean? In that, in that, so, like, more yeah, of like I a pigeon-toed position. Yeah. Right? So, so it, it's not so much that I want my thighs to spin in a ton. It's that I want to engage those muscles. It's not so important what the thigh does. It's that when you engage the internal rotators, that helps bring them pelvic rim forward. Okay. So it's a strategy to rotate the pelvic rim forward more than it's a strategy to change the position of the leg bone itself. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. Yeah. And so if you, um, if you, if your body naturally moves into forward bends very easily, like for me, let's yes. say yes, a way to, uh, what am I trying to say? A way to stop to kind of put brakes, yeah, exactly. to kind of or or create like a complementary force. Mm -hmm. I was going to say this, but you you say what you were going to say. Oh, well, 
I don't know that I'm going to say it exactly personal, perfectly. So I'll just say it from an experiential point of view. Like for me, uh, let's say I'm in wide legged standing forward fold. So mm-hmm. I'm coming forward into proserita. Uh, you know, I initiate the action from the pelvis, uh, tilts forward, come down into the forward bend. And I have the potential for uh, rotating the pelvis almost too far. Um, and, or I don't know if it's rotating the pelvis too far. Or well, so there's just nowhere rotating. to go. Right. Right. So essentially, if I'm not careful, I, uh, like the sitting bones go too wide apart and I overstretch the hamstring attachment. Yeah. It's probably that you just, you, they probably don't go too far because they're fixed and they can't actually separate like a, a measurable amount, but you can continue by you trying to continually internally rotate. You can continue to put an unnecessary and excessive amount of torque mm-hmm. onto your hamstring attachments, right? right? So that that was kind of, I'm, I'm glad you set this up because this is, remember at the beginning of this, I said, describing rotation is complicated mm-hmm. and there's not a short answer, yep. right? Um, so here's the thing, which is in all of my forward bends, I still want my pelvis to come with me a little bit more because I have pretty limited motion in my forward bends. There's no forward bend in which I am coming to a place of compression in the front of the hip socket. That's never what's stopping me. What's stopping me is restriction on the backside. So I spend a lot of time internally rotating my femurs pretty much in all forward bends, or I should say more accurately, engaging the muscles that internally rotate, right? But for you and for many other people that have more range of motion, you're going to hit diminishing returns, right? right? Because you're going to get to a place where there's nowhere for the pelvis to go. So why would we engage the muscles that rotate the pelvic rim forward more when there's nowhere for it to go? Because that only creates greater stress, Yeah. right? And so for someone like you or for someone, let's just say, that just has that you know, when you come into a forward bend, you are limited because your legs are there or you're limited because the floor's there. Like that's why you stop in a forward bend is because your legs are blocking you from going further, right? Right. So for someone like that, there's no efficacy to trying to internally rotate more. Yeah. Right? The, the reason I brought this up yeah. is not to talk about my body. <laughs> no, 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 no. But, but that, um, but that's, um, that's the important. Reason, the reason I brought it up is because I'm just, I'm trying to contextualize this person's question. And I wonder if she's wondering, you know, if this is a cue to give in class or if she's wondering if it is an internal cue that she should be saying to herself. And either way, I want to know your point of view on pointing out as you're, as people are doing a forward bend that they are internally rotating. So this is, uh, Okay. This is this gets to the impossibility of teaching group classes and being right all the time. Yeah. You can't be. You can't be right for everyone. So you essentially have to pick the sensible instructions that are accurate for the majority of people and then try to um, bring awareness to people who uh, that instruction is not working for. Okay, so I think it's totally reasonable in general in class to advocate for people to internally rotate the thighs and forward bends. I think that's totally fine. And of course, there are going to be exceptions to that rule. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that we can usually see those exceptions to the rule. Um, Those are usually the people that that um, 
there's just nowhere else for them to go. Like they'd have to cut, if they're in a wide-legged seated forward fold, you'd have to cut a hole in the floor for them to go further, right? Um, And so I think it's a totally reasonable, this is kind of the language I give to it. It's a totally reasonable, good default cue. But like every cue, it's not going to be perfect for everyone all the time. Okay. You know, I think the last thing to think about is there are going to be postures where the thigh bones start externally rotated and then you're creating the action of internal rotation, but they're not actually going anywhere. So an example is a bound angle pose, Baddha Konasana, mm-hmm. right? Or the front leg in pigeon pose. Okay. Or ankle to knee pose or simple cross-legged forward bend or Janushashasana on the bent knee. In all of those poses, that leg is externally rotated. It will stay externally rotated, but it is still sensible to slightly engage the internal rotators. Yeah. Okay. You know what I mean? Yep. And then that's why, again, like not to keep going on and on, but I'm going to go on and on. Um, it's difficult when we're talking about rotation. And it's also difficult unless this is where this is where I think the more seasoned I am, the more I, I have to make individual cases and say, well, let's let's see what, what you're experiencing in your body, right? And then let's let's take it from here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Let's go. Let's do. I want to do the related question, which I think is pretty simple. Okay. Um, which th- this has come up. I've gotten two emails in the last week. One of them was from Mark from the 300-hour program about whether or not the humerus bone, the upper arm bone, externally rotates in chaturanga. Um, and I think this is this is kind of difficult to unpack, but I'm going to make it simple, which is it's not. The humerus bone is really in chaturanga. You may be engaging the external rotators, but it is not externally rotated. It is in a very neutral position, right? It's actually in a measurably n- neutral position. This is like the only time today I wish we were doing this with a camera so I could show people that What's actually happening in Chaturanga is that the upper arm bones are strongly adducting. Well, it depends on who you're talking to, but you have me, right? So the upper arm bones are hugging in. You're probably engaging the external rotators of the humerus. So that's especially um, infraspinatus and the teres minor. Uh, Teres major is engaging strongly, but it's not as much of an external rotator. Um, So you're engaging the external rotators of the rotator cuff. But when the hands are positioned on the ground, uh, the way that they're positioned in Chaturanga, the humerus bone really can't externally rotate. Um, Now, what can be confusing is sometimes teachers, including myself, will have people do plank, slightly externally rotate the arms, and lower down into Chaturanga. So So wait, so so start in plank and then like... Turn the hands out? No, no, no. Oh. Right. Just, so just turn the elbow. The yeah. So, okay, so, yeah. Sorry. So the hands can stay forward I or I usually turn my hands out. I don't know why I struggled with that. For but you can, you okay. can't, you could turn your fingers yeah. out. Okay. But it doesn't matter because the hand is in a fixed position. Um, you, you can't, sig- I guess my bottom line on Chaturanga is because the hand is in a fixed position, you really can't significantly externally rotate the arm. It's pretty neutral. 
maybe it's slightly more externally rotated than it is neutral. Um, and you are engaging the external rotators, but you're also engaging the internal rotators because you're adducting. Um, so you're firing the muscles associated with external rotation, likely. Um, but the but the humerus bone is in a neutral position. Like it's 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 um it's measurable. You can even look at me and confirm it. Okay, there's chaturanga. Mm. Got there's it. external rotation. Yeah. There's internal rotation. Mm -hmm. So the degree of adduction, the upper arm is staying pinned to my ribs. But if but if my, if everyone is if everyone was just sitting with their hands not on something and pretending to do chaturanga right now, squeeze the elbows in, and then your hands are not on anything, and then now keep the elbows pinned in and move your externally rotate your arms. So move your forearms and hands away from each other. And you see that they go very significantly out to the side. Yeah. And then come back to neutral. So you can see measurably, they're not, they're not truly, they're not really even close to maximally externally rotated, but maybe a little bit. Okay. This has become a, this has become a really topic du jour lately for some reason. Hmm. Yeah. Do you know why? Like, do you think people are trying to figure out injury or something? No, I think it comes a little bit from the, I think it comes a little bit from the language of some of the functional movement specializations and some of the functional training, which I'm a total advocate for. But I think bigger what it comes from is not discerning the difference between an action and emotion. Mm. It's not discerning the difference between engaging your external rotators and also allowing that bone to move into greater external rotation. Mm. Totally, I would be I would advocate for engaging the external rotators, but when your hands are on the floor, they, the humerus bone just actually can't rotate out. Got it. Yeah. Okay, so why don't we do another hip related question? Yeah. Different different region. But the question is hold on one moment, please. I would love it if Jason could address the idea of stretching the psoas and the hip flexors. So she brings up the idea that most people who are uh, overall physically weak ha also have a tight psoas, but she's not sure if passive stretching is okay. Um. I mean, passive stretching is always okay and sensible reason and sensible and reasonable in a proper context. Um, the question is whether or not it's the most efficient way of doing something. I think one of the challenges in answering this question is that um, is that the psoas is one of many hip flexors, and it's not really even the dominant hip flexor in all situations. One of the quads, the rectus femoris, is probably a more dominant hip flexor in most of our daily situations. Um, and that one of the primary responsibilities of the psoas is not just hip flexion, um, but is spinal stabilization. It's lumbar stabilization. Uh, so the psoas, they work as these these massive shock absorbers for the spine and they help facilitate the uprightness of the spine. Um, they're also like many other parts of the body, they are intimately tied to, I mean, the whole body is intimately tied to the nervous system, right? Um, 
I guess what I'm trying to get at is I think one of the most effective ways to release extraneous tension in the psoas is through deep relaxation. So the question then is passive stretching the most effective way to deeply relax? Well, it can be helpful, but I would even say that um, things that aren't necessarily stretching the psoas, but are facilitating deep relaxation in the nervous system are going to have a positive effect on releasing that extraneous tension, right? So guided shavasanas, guided yoga nidra, uh, restorative yoga, uh, a la Judith Lassiter and Bo Forbes and Roger Cole and many other teachers that really teach profoundly good uh, restorative work. Because all of those things can have such a uh, quieting, soothing effect on the nervous system, that might help reduce the excessive uh, tension mm. of the psoas itself. I, I, what about like myofascial release? Yeah, the only thing it's just so hard to get deep into there. So that that's going to be kind of that's kind of be going to be kind of the next thing. Mm -hmm. Okay, so I I would say that one strategy. Okay, so the reason that I bring that strategy up is because there's really no potential downside. Because remember the way the question has been set up which is the muscle is tight and weak. Mm -hmm. And we know that stretching a weak muscle um, isn't addressing everything that needs to be addressed. I'm not going to say it's bad or wrong, but we'll say if something is tight and weak, just stretching it only achieves part of the goal. It does not achieve the entirety of the goal. Um, it maybe does 50% of the goal, but it's not even close to 100 so by facilitating relaxation, you aren't putting it under tensile stress. You're not, you're not stretching something that's weak. You're trying to relax the system that is creating that unnecessary tightness. So there's no, there's really no downside to trying to release the nervous system, to release the psoas through creating relaxation in the nervous system, yeah. right? So that's one strategy. And I think that that strategy is, is very easily overlooked because it's, it's just hard to remember how good it is for your physical body to let the bleep go. Mm -hmm. It is really hard. You know? Yeah. So, that, so that's one strategy, okay? Then when we're talking more about psoas, as it functionally relates to the other hip flexors, okay? So especially as it relates to rectus femoris, gracilis sartorius, iliacus, some, some all that kind of package, that deep front of the hip. Then what I would say is, well, we, want, we have two tasks in the setup of this question. We have the task of creating length, releasing excess tension, but we also have the, the, um, the task of creating more strength more tone. Well, to me, there's a pretty simple solution to that, uh, which is end range strengthening or eccentric strengthening or engaging those muscles a little bit when they're stretching, right? So a simple way of doing this would be to be in any of the poses that lengthen the hip flexors, right? So especially the lunges, I teach a lot of high lunge, low lunge, Pigeon pose a little bit more upright for the back leg. So anything, look, look, anything that stretches, unquote, or creates a length on the front of the hip, do that. But when you're in that stretch, 
create a little engagement of those muscles at the same time. Yeah. Um, because th because then then you are again. I, I'm not suggesting this is the only way of doing it, or that doing it a different way is bad. I'm suggesting this is a way where you're helping to uh, create a little bit of strength and tone and you're creating a little bit more length in those tissues, right? Okay. And the, the, it is the thing about the hip flexors um, almost categorically, especially the psoas, uh, actually not, not especially the psoas, is that those muscles do tend to be really, really, really tight, but not necessarily strong. Mm-hmm. Um, I think psoas is enough of a mystery that I, I don't want to say more about that, but I, I would say especially the hip, the rec fem, mm -hmm. uh, which is one of those quads, tight and weak for mm -hmm. so many people. Mm -hmm. So I know if I'm just stretching it, that's fine if through some other modality, I'm also going to strengthen it. Mm -hmm. But if but if I don't have that plan, if I'm just, if I'm just going to rely on passively stretching something that is tight and weak. I'm going to do a very good job meeting one of the needs, but but not a good job of meeting a different need. Mm -hmm. Lay over a ball, foam roller, yeah. all that stuff, direct pressure. Yeah. And that can be very um difficult. <laughs> it can, but it also feels it's sort of like Sounds so weird to say, but it's like it hurts so good. You know, it's like if you get the right spot, it yeah. actually can feel. You can have a feeling of release. Yeah, and I and I would say, I would say to get the right spot requires a certain amount of skill and knowledge that you don't necessarily want to just start firing away on uh, laying on protruding things on the groin. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, you anyway, like it's yes. it's really sensitive in there. I I don't go to the groin. I Go to like in inside of the um, hip point. Yeah, but that that's also okay. right right the groin. Okay. So it's the top of the groin. Okay. Okay. So our last question is: I was hoping you could answer my question about floating and jump through to seated. Oh, I would love a breakdown of these two transitions. What exercises can one do to help? What mistakes are people normally making in these transitions? It's so hard to unpack. Um, okay. So let's say, let's start with just jump through. Okay. So, okay. The most important thing to think about, whether it's, I suppose when she says floating, she means like jumping forward from down dog and right. then I, I pausing for a moment things... or transitioning to handstand. Oh, okay. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Cause I, to me, floating and jumping through are, I imagine this both are the same thing, but if you're saying floating, I think that they're is... they're two related things. Okay. Okay. Um, so the first thing that we have to understand is leverage mechanics. We have to understand what's involved in leverage, and it isn't just a function of strength. It's also a function of mobility. Okay. So it's also a little bit a function of proportions. So you have to be strong. You have to be really mobile, especially in a certain, a couple of places. And then ideally you have advantageous proportions. Um, so let's just talk about jumping from down dog through to a seated position. Right. Through to Pachamotanasana, uh, like is done in the uh, Ashtanga world and then Vinyasa derivatives. So if you break that down, you can really break down it, break it down into a couple of things. 
you can break it down into um, lolasana. So you have to have a good lolasana. You also have to have a good pachimottanasana. Yeah. Right? Uttanasana. And a good uttanasana. Yeah. So I would say, I would venture to guess that the vast, there's always exceptions. I would venture to guess that the vast majority of people that can jump through from down dog through to a sit pachimottanasana without their butt like crashing into the floor in roots, when they do a seated forward fold, their torso is all the way against their legs. Yeah. Yeah. Because if because if you don't have that hinging capacity at the hip flexors, if you don't have that flexibility uh, that strength of the hip flexors and that length in the hamstrings, then there's no way you're going to get You have to get your pelvis directly over your hands at some point. Yeah, so when you and jump And if you want right. to land with your legs straight, like if you bend your legs that's different in terms of the hamstring length. But if you not, want but to, not much. Really? Okay. Not much. But if you want to land with your legs straight, um, the king of the jumping through to seated is David Swenson. And in his book, that classic book of his, I can't remember what it's called, but it's like basically in a strong handbook. He has a beautiful series of photos of him doing it. And in one of the photos, he's essentially in uh, Uttanasana, like in a standing forward fold with his hands on the floor and his feet off the ground. Yes. That's the float. Yes. Okay. Oh, okay. So okay. so you have to have an Uttanasana. Again, rare exceptions. You have to have an Uttanasana in which your torso is plastered to the legs and the legs are plastered to the torso and your hands are on the ground. Now, proportionately, if you have shorter legs, if you have that same situation and slightly shorter legs relative to the length of your torso, you're in luck. Hmm. Because then you have the shorter leg lever, which is suspended by the longer torso lever. And by pressing the hands down, you have the right proportions to be able to lift the feet up. But if think about it the opposite way, if you have really long legs and a, and a shorter torso, then you have less space to get the legs through when you jump through. But what if you have long arms too? I don't mean to be like... But what if you have very long arms and very long legs? Then that probably nets out. It kind of, yeah, okay. That probably nets out. Because I have short arms and short legs, but a very deep forward bend. And when I was young and you could jump like through, right? Pounds, you could, could totally jump. I could through. jump through. But you I was, have the perfect I body type. Too. Much less though. Yeah, but we're not. <laughs> we're not allowed to talk about that. Oh, part. okay, okay, okay. Okay. Yeah. Not allowed to talk. It was about just that I was like, just everything about my my strength to like lightness ratio was different than it is now. Strength to weight ratio. So yeah. right, a, a strength to weight ratio um, and then an uttanasana that is profoundly deep, yeah. right? And that is, those are pre, I won't say pre, they're prerequisites for most people, okay? Um, now, do you also have to be strong? Totally. So let's think a little bit about where you want to be strong. First people think people are going to say is abs. I would say abs should be strong, but more than that, hip flexors hmm. and uh, deltoids. Yeah. Shoulder, 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 shoulder strength. like the brakes, right? They're the brakes. Yeah. And I think this gets understated, especially in arm balances, especially in the modern era with a fixation on core. You don't lift anything with the core. 
you contain weight with the core. You contain mass with the core, but you don't lift things up with the core. So you want strong hip flexors because that's going to be what gives you the active hinge at the front of the hips. You want really supple hamstrings and spinal muscles, strong hip flexors, strong deltoids. And if your wrist can hyperextend a little bit, you're probably in luck. Mm. Because if you look at almost everyone that jumps through, there's going to be a phase where the hips are over the, the hands, the shoulders are a little forward and the feet are off the ground. Yeah. So if you look at really detailed, you have incredibly deep forward fold, strong hip flexors, strong abdominals, strong shoulders, and probably wrists that are slightly hyperextended. Mm -hmm. That's what you'll see the vast majority of the time. Okay. Now, can you learn how to do those things? Can you, can you, um, acquire those specific attributes? Probably, probably for most people, like I, I've never been able to jump through just because my hamstrings have never been flexible enough. Um, but if you kind of like jumped, I can do it with up. like cross legs. Right, I can like keep my if way you through. Jumped up and crossed your legs. You could do it. I can do it that yeah, way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's what I'm saying too, is like, you have to have a strong low lasana, a strong pachimottanasana, a strong navasana. Those would be the things that I would be working quite a bit. I think that breath probably plays a component. You brought up David Swenson, right? So David Swenson can jump through to sitting on his inhalation way better than I can jump through to sitting on my exhalation. That's for sure. But I would say for most people jumping forward, it's probably best to jump forward at the very end of the exhalation. The reason being is that at this point, your um, it's it's the easiest place, the end of that exhalation is the easiest place to really draw the belly back and up. Um, it's a place where your uh, where your respiratory anatomy, but especially your diaphragm, it's kind of in the it's in the best set of actions. The best action phase for a jump through is probably the end of the exhalation. Again, that's not that's not how it's taught in the Ashtanga world. And like I said, many people in the Ashtanga world can do it at an in-breath way better than I can do it on an out-breath. So don't get me wrong on that. But probably preferable to be jumping right at the end of the exhalation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I think for women, well, I shouldn't generalize, but um, like for me, the hardest part of the pose is the delt strength. Like yes. when I'm doing when I'm doing a lot of inversion work, which I do less and less these days, but um, when I'm you know really strong in my upper body for me, um, it's much easier than when I'm not. So like handstand and, and hopping into handstand. When I could hop into handstand. I could do that much yes. more easily because I had that, like, I had that skill um, that I, yeah, I lose if I'm not practicing that a lot. You know, it's, the jump through is never something, it's never something that has felt that great in my shoulders. And I think part of the reason it's never felt that great in my shoulders is I've never had the right, I've never, I've never been able to optimize my leverage 
by having that deep hip hinge. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? So I, it feels like it's always been something overloaded on my wrist, always overloaded on my shoulders. And that's not a fault of the process. That's a phenomenon of, I just don't have that super deep hip hinge. And so more gets thrown into my shoulders. Yeah. You yeah, know? Yeah. Um, I'd say the only other thing too is like, if you had slightly more narrow shoulders and slightly broader hips, that's going to be harder. If on the other hand, you are, are like, you're more shoulder and hip width are more or less the same for you. I mean, you know, if you're like Captain America and you have these broad shoulders and skinny and like narrow little <laughs> hips, that's one thing. Actually, you will see this. You will see a lot of male gymnasts, male like divers, male um, acro yoga people um, that have these broad shoulders and narrow hips, right? Because if you, because the broader the shoulder, the, the wider the base, yeah. the narrow the hip, the narrower the thing you're trying to get through the arms. Right. So it's not even just about weight. Yeah. It's about, it's about you, the, the arms form a gate, right? And if you have broader hips, you have to take the hands wider to get those hips through. For me, I don't have broad hips, but when I jump through with crossed legs, because I'm crossing my legs, that makes the whole thing wide. I'm like mm -hmm. a cannonball. Yeah. You know? Yeah, yeah. And so I have to, I have to like place my hands a little bit wider. Um, but, you, but this is, this is where like, we just have certain body type realities that um, are going to not dictate, but they're going to influence um, our, our, they're going to influence certain more extreme physical demands like this. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. All right. Well, this is a this is a great one, Jason. Thank you so much. You're welcome. All right, everyone. Thanks for listening. Jason has a nice series of blog posts about Chaturanga. Uh, so I will put links to those on the show notes page, which you can find at yogalandpodcast.com slash episode 208. And I will also put a link to that book I referred to of David Swenson's, the name which of which is escaping me right now. I'll put a link to that on the show notes page too, so you can order it if you would like to. Thanks so much for listening. And until next week, enjoy your practice.